start. Thank you. My name is Marge Fox, and I'm still an alcoholic, and I'm still your chairman for the rest of the weekend. Hi, everybody. It's really good to see you again, and I'm sure you're all having a, a grand weekend, and thank you so much. We'll have a moment of silence for the alcoholics who are still suffering and for the alcoholics who are no longer with us. Will you please join me in the serenity prayer? God grant me serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. I'm going to turn the meeting over to Frank. I'm sure most of you have met him, and if not, I'm sure he would like to meet you after the meeting. Frank? Thanks, everybody. My name's Frank. I'm an alcoholic. And uh, like Jim in the uh, big book that uh, Joe read about, I suffer from nervous disorders, and uh, uh, especially when my time comes to speak. Uh, in counterpoint to Joe and Charlie, which, which are good role models for me, they're sort of laid back and playful, and uh, they have a nice rhythm going with themselves. I'm more on the hysterical edge of life. <laughs> and it doesn't seem to get better, I mean, for those of you who <laughs> have that kind of nature. I... I'd like first to, before I plunge into this, uh, uh, thank, thank Marge and Jack and uh, the members of the committee for asking me. Uh, it's a renewal for me to come to these things. I uh, touched that Marge, opened it with a prayer for the suffering alcoholic. I used to think that meant the new person. Now I know that the suffering alcoholic can have 7, 10, 12, in my case, 16 years of uh, that kind of stuff. I mean, uh, it can happen to us at any time. I mean, life's uh, a beach. <laughs> uh, I see on a Burrow Beach uh, t-shirt. Uh, so it can get us, and uh, this kind of thing is necessary for me. Uh, a reminder that recovery can, for me, begin today, uh, and necessary for me to begin each day. I didn't stay drunk on yesterday's drinking, as uh, Joe and Charlie pointed out. We had to have fresh drinking today, and I can't stay sober on yesterday's spiritual experience. I need something today. Uh, I have to have something fresh, some fresh promise in my life that uh, life's going to be fulfilling. So I thank the committee for uh, the mixed bag. Uh, also, uh, get this out of the way, I, I, I feel honored and, uh, and humbled to be on the, on the same uh, uh, panel with uh, Joe and Charlie. I mean, they've made m much contribution to my life. And I was doing calculations based on, uh, they do this about 30 weekends uh, uh, a year, and I estimated that they've reached probably 40,000 of us. That's extraordinary, you know, because if they've reached 40,000 with the impact that they've reached my recovery, that's an incredible critical mass of us out there that think different about what we have, or if you're like me. Uh, my attitude profoundly changed from my encounter with uh, the Big Book Seminar my first time. Uh, maybe I changed, too, at a profound level. Uh, I don't know where to start. I've never been this way before. Uh, uh, I don't mean nervous before, but I've been that. But I, I mean, I've never uh, tried to, uh, to do a history of the Big Book in, 
in the middle of Joe and Charlie's <laughs> thing, uh, which they do so well anyway. Uh, it's kind of like uh, Coles to Newcastle, I think. But uh, let me tell you some of my concerns and some of my viewpoints and stuff like that. And maybe at the end we'll have, uh, there are lots of people in this room with uh, uh, the same kinds of concerns and viewpoints. But um, AA is the single most valuable thing in my life. Uh, and that downs me because I was the type of person uh, who walked about the planet and didn't care, maybe couldn't care at any profound level. I, drink not to, I drank not to care. Uh, highly intense person, you know, I, uh, I worried usually about things I couldn't do anything about. Uh, and uh, that was my kind of per personality that was treated by, uh, by alcohol. Uh, before AA, my uh, interest in anything lasted about 24 months at the edge, the top edge of it. After 24 months, I knew the vocabulary of it. I knew everything about it. I was bored, you know, and, and, and that was a personal relationship. That was a job. That was school. That was the army, whatever. I mean, by the time 24 months had gone by, I had wrung every drop of meaning from it. I mean, I, I could finish their sentences. You know, I knew what was going to happen. And I was like that when I was seven years old, and I was like that in my 50s. Uh, so, um... AA's been a profound adventure on a yearly basis. Every year I learn how little I know and, uh, and how much I want to know. You know, that kind of uh, experience, which is uh, unnerving in a lot of ways. You know, I, my ego says, God, you should be getting better at this, <laughs> or, or something should be happening. Some kind of a progress should be uh, experienced. But I came in today to this meeting today with the same kinds of uh, needs and hungers and, uh, that I went to the first time I heard them. Uh, it's, all, it's all new to me. I mean, I hear things in a, in a new way today. And I have new, new needs probably today. Anyway, let me tell you why I think uh, the critical mass of how many thousands of us there, that they're touching and, and changing us, tipping us over into a new consciousness maybe. Uh, I think that's true for me personally, and I think it's true for us collectively. I think AA is different every single day and every single hour. Uh, our individual uh, uh, attitudes and viewpoints are changing, uh, and our collective ones are. AA is uh, over 50 now, you know, and uh, we can fill huge halls, you know, uh, sporting arenas full of thousands of us doing the waves you know, like they do at the, the ball games. Uh, that blew my mind to see that. Uh, to see Joe speak about that size <laughs> from, from very far away to uh, about 45,000 of us blew my mind. Uh, uh, so we've come a long way, and we're a success today. You can hardly pick up the newspaper and hear that some movie star isn't amongst us. And a lot more should be, uh, and will be. Uh, but we've made it. You know, everything our co-founders dreamed of is happening. You know, asylums have become treatment centers. I'm going to quote that around uh, a lot. Uh, but I mean, that was, that was their dream, to have that kind of thing. Treatment centers for all of us. And now anybody with $18,000 can go into a treatment center. <laughs> I mean, you know, or, or a rich friend. Uh, uh, that kind of stuff, and that, that, that there are so many of us bouncing around like happy little molecules, enough to give each other encouragement, encouragement and, uh, and love and guidance and uh, as much comfort as we go about our individual journeys. 
I think life is an individual journey. Uh, I like that part that uh, where people normally don't mix. But we come together a couple of times a day for some of us, once a day, sometimes a couple of times a week for some of us, and give ourselves encouragement and, uh, and hugs in our journeys to uh, where we're supposed to go. And uh, we celebrate uh, the fact that we haven't drunk today. And uh, these things are, are just bigger kinds of those celebrations. Um, I don't know how I got mixed up with a crowd uh, like this. But um, I'm glad it happened for me. Uh, I'm enriched by the experience. Uh, let me start off. I, I was glad that uh, Joe brought up that uh, the alcoholic has been understood before. Uh, Joe talked about Solomon. Uh, there was a man. I'm not. I, I know. I'm. I'm. My subject is. Uh, I, <laughs> I wander. Uh, uh, I wander. Uh, the grazing principle. I start here and then I get over there and uh, I haven't said what I supposed to have said or or uh, thought I'd say. But but let me just because I think to to understand what we have, it's nice to see how barren it was before us. You know, one way to. Uh, to embrace your life and, and feel how good it is, is to, to keep the memory green. By the way, Carl, Carl Sandburg wrote something that I think is very appropriate to us. He wrote that whenever a society or a civilization fails, there's always one condition present. They forgot where they came from. You know, and I think that's true for me personally. I think if I forget I'm an alcoholic, if I forget I threw up all over the streets of Manhattan and every other place on the planet I could, uh, that I begged for another drink, that I humiliated myself and anybody I could get near to feed my addiction. Uh, if I ever get far away from that, I'm in big trouble, you know, because that's, that's both my end and my beginning, you know, and it's necessary that I know that. And I think it's true for us collectively that we can't forget our roots. You know, we can't forget that we're, we're uh, the 12 and 12 talks, children of chaos, that we're from, we're, that, our, that our ancestors are desperate people from desperate times. And it's nice when we're filling arenas and when we all have suits and we all have pretty cars and uh, big glasses and we're the toast of, uh, of government agencies or whoever, that we ourselves don't forget where we, that we've come from. And uh, because God has done for us individually and collectively what we could not have done for ourselves. And sometimes, as Bill said, success can be more corrosive than failure. You know, I can be more drunk, more intoxicated on winning at life than I ever was when I failed. Failing gets my attention. You know, I say, something's wrong here. Why am I in the gutter? You know, why am I out of work? You know, why doesn't life work for me? I get my attention when I fail. When I'm winning at life, I'm too filled with myself. I'm too busy talking. I'm on a roll. And AA, in a lot of ways, is on a roll. You know, it doesn't seem we can do anything wrong. So it's good that we have these kinds of gatherings to remind us that uh, where we've done. Uh, it's also, uh, you know, the, the, the recovery part of the program couldn't have been covered any more completely or compellingly than, uh, than the times I've heard it with Joe and Charlie. But we also have service. We also have unity you know, the other components of Alcoholics Anonymous that are necessary for us to consider. 
Uh, I started to say that there, there have been other phenomenons where alcoholics have recovered on this planet. I came into AA and I thought we were the first, you know, Bill and Bob were the first ones who jumped up sober one day and uh, there was no, nobody ever before, before them. That wasn't so. God had given the answer to alcoholism a couple of times before, at least historically recorded. Uh, people had known, for example, that alcoholism was a disease. Benjamin Rush, one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence in, uh, in uh, 1787, wrote that alcoholism was a d d disease, that it was progressive, and that the answer was abstinence. You know, all he, he knew it, he was a prominent man, nobody heard him. You know, this country has always had a love affair with alcoholism. You know, we're all running from some other part in the planet, probably bringing our alcoholism. I mean, colonial days was pretty heavy drinking, I'm told. And, uh, so anyway, in, uh, before, you know, right after, uh, right after the Declaration of Independence, people knew that alcoholism was a disease. And here everybody's falling all over themselves with the AMA in 1956 calling alcoholism a disease. So my point is we can lose our way again. You know, we can't come from enormous amounts of confidence that we have this thing licked now. Because just the same as I can individually forget my recovery, collectively we can forget ours. You know, Evie had it once, as uh, Joe and Charlie have said, Hank Parkhurst, I mean, uh, the litany of people. We all know people who have had it, the solution before, have lived their lives in a spiritual way, and have some, somehow lost it. You know, uh, that's what we need vigilance for. That's what we need individual vigilance in this kind of renewal situation. But it's that kind of thing that we need collectively. Um, around the Civil War, well, before the Civil War, there was a temp uh, temperance movement around and about this country that began about 1820. And uh, at one time, over a quarter of the people in this country signed a temperance pledge. So somebody must have had a problem, you know. Uh, some of them were very young. Some of them were kids, I guess, forced to take it by their mothers or whoever. Uh, but a lot of them were people that saw around them uh, problems with alcohol. You know, we always think, I, I sometimes think that, uh, you know, we're the drug culture. But this country has had long problems with drugs. You know, uh, one time Coca-Cola was an addictive drug and they had to make everybody take that stuff out of it. And now the stuff is back under different packaging, <laughs> different people. Uh, but uh, anyway, uh, I'm, I'm just going to try to encapsulate that, ki that kind of stuff. But at, at one time, depending on what, what newspaper you read, between 100 and 600,000 people had recovered in a thing called the Washingtonians. And the Washingtonians had uh, started at a bar, the Chase Tavern, outside of Baltimore. And there were just some people sitting around. They, they'd uh, uh, heard about temperance. They were drinkers that met every night, you know, like you did in your bars met every night and said, I wonder what those temperance people are doing down the street. They're having a parade tonight. And somebody said, let's go. And they went. They went, they jumped up and they went to the temperance thing. And they were converted. They had a conversion experience. And they got sober. And they started something called the Washingtonians. And uh, they were connected roughly. They tried to be independent, but they were, they were swept along with the... Uh, um, march of the temperance people. Temperance was hot in this country. This country had lots of problems and the temperance people offered a solution. Uh, and they had a lot of things that we have. 
By the way, uh, let me, as Joe and Charlie do, say I'm no expert. You know, everything, uh, everything I say is, is from this book or, or a, a pamphlet called The Washingtonians, which was done by a former uh, 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 chairman of the General Service Board of Alcoholics Anonymous, Milton Maxwell. Uh, and I urge everybody, to, uh, uh, someone said, you know what an expert is, Frank? And they said, uh, it's two parts. An ex, that's uh, somebody who's past or former, and a spurt. And a spurt is a drip under pressure. <laughs> So, and I think that uh, needful that I say I'm not an expert. Uh, so I think just like we all have to own the big book, we all have to somehow go through the big book and own, own it in a way, apply it to our own lives and the emotional and the disasters and everything else have to be applied. So does our collective history have to be read in that fashion. We have to own it. Um, you know, uh, I didn't get drunk on Bill Wilson's drinking. I had to have my own, and I, had to, I have to own my own recovery, you know, in the sense of uh, y using his uh, experience as uh, some kind of funnel with which to view and uh, experience my own. And the same is true with us collectively. You know, it's no good uh, AA history sitting in a book, uh, AA comes of age, or pass it on, or, or Dr. Bob and the good old timers does no good for us uh, unless we own it collectively, unless all of us read it and value of it, uh, value it, and see how precious a thing we have. Anyway, let me get back to uh, the Washingtonians. Uh, they had a lot of uh, the features that an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting has. They have, for example, weekly meetings. They were attended largely in the beginning by alcoholics, although they didn't restrict the membership to alcoholics, which may have been key to their diffusion of energy. But they also had fellowship. They also had follow-up things. They cared about each other. They helped each other get jobs. They helped, helped each other to rebuild their lives. But they didn't have a program of recovery. You know, they knew about not drinking. They were religious people. They knew about God. But they had no thing what Joe and Charlie took us about, a regular application of a method to get in touch with a power greater than ourselves. And, uh, and in 12 years, nobody heard about them. Twelve years they were gone. From a hundred to six hundred thousand, uh, they were gone. They just got bored, I guess, going to meetings. They began to be ridiculed. They went public. Uh, the uh, the founders got drunk. I mean, a lot of things we learned from watching their disaster. Okay, a little later on in the uh, in our in our in history about the uh, the turn of this century, uh, 1900s. There was a, a movement swept the, the the eastern part of the country, northeast. Uh, the Emanuel Movement. And what the Emanuel Movement did was take two powers that were available, religion and psychology, and fuse them. The same kinds of things that we have in our big book, the power of understanding the mechanisms of the alcoholic mind with the power of religion, the force of, for, uh, for getting connection with God, spiritual nourishment, that kind of thing, a substitute for alcohol. And that, that may have had 30,000 recovered alcoholics in that movement. And they had alcoholics helping other alcoholics. They had friendly visitors, they called them. And they were an alcoholic who would visit another alcoholic and carry the message in that way. They also had counseling. They had two kinds of counseling. You saw a doctor for your physical component of your alcoholism, and you also saw a minister, in this case an Episcopal minister, and uh, for your spiritual healing. So they had a lot of the same kinds of ideas that we had, 
And yet in another short period of time, in uh, 12 to 14 years, the, uh, the thrust went out of them and, uh, and they weren't around. They capitalized, at that time there was Mary Baker Eddy and she was fusing science and medicine. There was William James who was to be very influential in Bill's thinking, Bill and Eddy. Uh, and William James, as um, most, most of us know, is, uh, was a, the foremost American psychologist, uh, very advanced in his day. And uh, his varieties of religious experience is uh, what got uh, uh, Bill's attention when Ebby brought, brought him that book in uh, Towns Hospital. The, uh, the ability to experience uh, psychic phenomenon yourself. And uh, there were varieties of ways that this could happen to you. Pain is a good one, you know. Pain makes you see things differently. <laughs> Alcohol makes you see things differently both ways. The combination of pain and alcohol is uh, uh, almost foolproof as a way to see, see things differently. And, uh, and you yearn to change your life if you live. Uh, a friend of mine I like to cite says, uh, Frank, every alcoholic stops drinking. It's nice to be alive when you stop. <laughs> we, we just have been alive when we stopped. And, uh, and what do you do with that unless you can get some kind of uh, mechanism to get into your life the reasons you drank. Like with me, drinking was both a narcotic and an energizer. I like, uh, like uh, Charlie, uh, I wanted to dance every time I had a drink, no matter how tired I was, my little feet couldn't sit still. And, uh, and it was a narcotic for me, it deadened the pain, it deadened my problems, I could be free with alcohol. So I mean, the, uh, it became obvious to, uh, to most people who dealt with alcoholics that uh, uh, abstinence wasn't enough, that you had to have some placement, replacement for it. So uh, anyway, all that stuff was on the landscape when AA was, uh, was being formed. And as uh, Joe and Charlie pointed out, that our direct roots are with the Oxford groups. And the Oxford groups were a collection of transformed people, simply. Both Bill and Bob were mixed up with the Oxford groups independently long before they met and long before either of them stopped drinking. So in a lot of ways they were more advantaged than I as an alcoholic because they were connected with a vocabulary of spiritual transformation where it was very alien to me. Uh, they were very comfortable talking to each other because they came, with pe they came from people, their own, their own thinking was uh, an agreement when they spoke was that God was indeed a force in their life. Uh, I didn't have that. I was so separated from any kind of connection like that. It took me years of AA before I could develop a vocabulary where I was comfortable. You know, I was embarrassed when people spoke about God. You know, I thought, why don't they do that at home? You know, I mean, that's where I was from. It was something very private uh, you did not talk about. I mean, that's how damaged and needy. And often we resist what we need the most. If you're like me, if I need it, you can be sure I can't look at it even. You know, if I'm interested in a person in a room, that's the last person I can talk to. You know, I can chatter forever to somebody I don't feel any passion toward. But if I have any kind of stuff going on with somebody, you can bet I'll be the clumsiest socially fool in the world if I were to open my mouth. So I stay away, I'm terrified. And that was, th that was true with spiritual uh, stuff too in the beginning. I had to have somehow a profound and deep and prolonged and slow healing 
before I could even communicate in the vocabulary of God. You know, so I identify with the people who uh, were in that kind of uh, separation, you know, damaged, uh, mentally damaged or however uh, emotionally damaged or uh, spiritually damaged that you can't even, uh, you know, it's like bringing the, the silver cross out to a vampire, you know, that kind of uh, 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 thing with me. Uh, anyway, the Oxford groups were a, phenomenon, a phenomenal success in this country in their day. Uh, I once knew figures about how many people belonged to the Oxford groups, but they were enormously prominent people. Truman, for example, uh, uh, Fiorella LaGuardia, some of you might be old enough to remember him reading the newspaper, the funnies to uh, kids in New York. Uh, but these were members of the Oxford groups. They were very, uh, very important people in their day. Uh, uh, eight, eight, nine thousand people attended their meetings. They're uh, in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, the Oxford uh, groups met. And they were a credible phenomenon. They were largely unpromoted. Uh, they didn't even have a name for a long time. Uh, they uh, were called uh, book, Bookmanism for their founder, Frank Bookman. And he was, a f he was from uh, the state, Pennsylvania. He was a Pennsylvania Dutch Lutheran. And uh, he came out of Muhlenberg. He went to Muhlenberg College. And uh, he started to work with uh, the YMCA and uh, a youth hospice. And he had trouble with the trustees. Can you imagine somebody having trouble with trustees? <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, he, and he quit angry. He got very angry and he told them off and he quit. And he went, uh, he went to England on a trip just to get away. And in England he had a spiritual experience. He had a yearning for reconciliation. He was swept with forgiveness. He was swept with love. And he wrote them all a letter he had the same kinds of conversion experience that Bill, Bill wrote about. And he wrote everybody a letter, letter all the uh, trustees a letter, asking for the fair forgiveness and explaining his uh, attitude. And he began to, uh, to carry that message of forgiveness, of reconciliation, to uh, members of Oxford University. And it swept through the university. It was an idea whose time had come, kind of like Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, once it ignited, it was unrelenting, like the Chinese army, you know. The first ten fall down, there's another billion behind them and another billion behind them. It was, uh, the Oxford movement's, uh, movement became unrelenting. Uh, and it appealed to the intellectual, surprisingly, not to a lot of blue-collar people, uh, like Dr. Bob and Bill. I mean, they, they weren't uh, blue-collar people. Uh, Dr. Bob was a surgeon. Uh, Henrietta Seibling, all the names we know about, uh, Walter Tonks, were we're kind of on the, uh, the fringe of, uh, of the cutting edge of, uh, of American and, uh, and English life. Uh, uh, at one time, uh, uh, I think a third, I read somewhere where a third of the ministers studying for, for the Protestant ministry were people who were uh, touched by Frank Bookman. He was a charismatic man. And uh, one of the people he touched was Sam Shoemaker and he was the rector of Calvary Church and uh, Calvary Church was where uh, Joe and Charlie spoke of Roland Hazard the man who had gone to Carl Jung and the man who had been treated repeatedly by Carl Jung had depth psychology in, a, in the most profound way with Dr. Jung in Switzerland and Roland keep getting, kept getting drunk and finally Roland went back to uh, Jung and said uh, 
can't you do anything for me? And Jung said, I've, uh, I can't do anything for alcoholics. And uh, Roland pushed him further, and, and Jung said uh, uh, that he had heard that uh, alcoholics who got, uh, his words were, religious conversion had been known to successfully recover from alcoholism. And, uh, and what Jung was talking about were the Oxford groups, the Oxford groups that had success with alcoholics. And Roland came back to New York, he, met, he got involved with Sam Shoemaker, the Oxford groups, and Roland had a religious conversion. And Roland happened to be a friend of Ebby, and Ebby happened to be a friend of Bill's, and the chain began for us. Lots of alcoholics got sober in the Oxford groups. Bill went to, uh, to meetings uh, in the Oxford groups from about 1933 uh, to uh, finally the AA began to pull away in New York uh, about 1937. So for about four years, Bill went to Oxford group meetings, about uh, at least two times a week, and, uh, and was healed. Ultimately, he, as you know, uh, he was healed. He, uh, I always, I, you know, like you, you discover new things uh, every time you, uh, you go through these uh, seminars. <clears throat> it occurred to me that Bill, from his story, the last time Bill worked was 1929. And he was never to work again. You know, now, if you, now, if you had a newcomer like that, I mean, not to work again in the field that he went. You know, if, he, you, if you had a newcomer sitting around the house uh, for four or five years, and he was going to help these other alcoholics, I mean, you weren't going to give him uh, a lot of sofa space, you know. Uh, but somehow Bill, Bill was able to, uh, he didn't get sober, of course, until 1934. Uh, December 11th, 1934, I think was his last drink. So there was five years he didn't work there, and then you remember he was still hustling money and trying to shoot an angle until, uh, you know, 1939 when the book was published and they began to get some income to pay Bill and Lois some kind of stipend that they could live. That's a long time from 1929 to 1939 to live on the kindness of strangers, you know, especially for a New England Yankee. You know, talk about uh, ego deflation and death. I mean, I don't know if I could have uh, survived that kind of thing. His wife working in a department store. I mean, that kind of stuff. Uh, a very gifted man, obviously. Uh, well, what that, what that reminds me and, and helps me get clear on is how desperate they were. You know, don't forget, this was the Depression. I mean, even people who had never had a teacup of alcohol were in difficult times. And alcoholics weren't exactly, uh, you know, high in anybody's regard in those days. So they had difficult, difficult times, and yet they uh, they hung together. You know, and uh, in addition to a personal recovery, which they began to get with the Oxford groups, they began to get fellowship and hanging together and a sense of unity, sense of unity by being with themselves. And we begin to see our our traditions formulating. You know, uh, often uh, in my own life, I do the right thing for the wrong reasons. You know, I came in, I didn't come into Alcoholics Anonymous for noble reasons. You know, I came because there was no place else to go. And uh, I didn't get into the steps for noble reasons. I got on the steps out of desperation. The fact that I just couldn't live like that and not suicide, you know. Uh, like I think all of us, I can be as drunk 
as intoxicated, sober as I ever was when I was drinking. I can be as full of hate, as full of uh, insanity, as, as unthinking, as unconscious, cold, sober as I ever was when I drank. And that kind of pain you feel because you have five senses reporting 100% of the data to you. You know, you're not living on fragments of information. You know, a word heard here and some little thing over there and, and kind of figuring things out. You got it all when you're sober. Information you didn't particularly want, if you're like me, to find out you're 36 years old, you're bloated, you're distended liver, liver and you hadn't worked for a year, and you, and you can't get back in the industry that you had your equity in. You know? And I can transform my own experience in my, in my own experience to Bill's experience and suffer with him during the founding of this thing and realize how desperate he was and yet the kinds of sacrifices they made for our behalf. Never before Alcoholics Anonymous was the solution ever gathered together into a book. And yet, obviously, when you read AA Comes of Age, they did the book to make money. You know, they, uh, Hank Parkhurst went around with schemes that they would sell 100 to 400,000 big books because the Oxford groups, their, their books sold in the millions. And they figured, God, we've got to sell 10% of what they sell. We're gifted and shrewd and we're not stupid. And, uh, and so they had big ideas for this book. Uh, and they worked on it in that spirit. Uh, that they were going to document this thing that they had and do the best of their ability, this little uh, group of people. And, uh, but they were going to make bucks with it. You know, the book cost 99 cents, that book that, uh, that uh, 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 Charlie has. And they sold it for 250 wholesale and uh, 350 retail. So they thought a dollar fifty you could sell a hundred thousand. I mean, you're talking about lots of bucks for people in the depression. You know, they would be on Easy Street with a hundred and fifty thousand dollars. So I mean, their dreams weren't so wild out. I mean, we laugh at them now. You know, uh, but in but considering their desperation and they wanted they they wanted something. But God God probably used their urgings for material relief to get them to do the big book. I mean, that's where the energy came from. Not to do any noble spiritual thing, but dangle the little carrot. You'll all be on easy street if you just do another chapter. You know, that kind of stuff. And, uh, and that's the kind of thing that worked in, with me in my early part of AA. You know, I just got enough of a treat to get to another meeting. And they got just enough of a carrot. Their hopes weren't totally dashed that they showed up and did another one and another one and another one. Uh, and while they were doing that, they were learning hard spiritual lessons. And those hard spiritual lessons have become our traditions. You know, uh, what our history formulates for us are our traditions. First of all, no matter what, even though we're people who normally do not mix, we stay together. AA unity comes first. Even though, as Joe and Charlie uh, rightfully point out, there were, there were angry armies inside Alcoholics Anonymous about the book, you know? Some wanted more God, some didn't want any God. Hank Parkhurst wanted a psychological book, you know? And other people wanted another Bible, you know? But they all stayed in the same room, screaming like a sandbox, 
screaming and hitting each other with a shovel, a verbal shovel, I'm sure. But they stayed in. The, the 40 people that they talked about in the fall of 1939 stayed in the room, or at least 18 of them stayed in Akron and voted. And they voted, voted on those three propositions, to do the book, to get paid missionaries, <laughs> and uh, I've forgotten, oh, hospitals, a chain of hospitals, as far as the eye could reach. And, uh, and that, was, uh, th that was barely passed with a lot of persuasion that they could finally reach an agreement, I think, by one or two of the 18, that, uh, okay, uh, we could go ahead with it, but Bill, you go back and raise the money. And Bill still thought they, they, would ha they would be able to raise money because they were caught up in their own magic. You remember that Bill uh, got sober in 1934, and here it was 1937, and he was the longest sober of that group. No, that's not a long time sober. It's less than, uh, whatever that comes out to be, less than four years, is it? Uh, and uh, when you're four years sober, you can do anything. You know? <laughs> when you're seven years sober, you kind of think, my God, did I do those things? You know? uh, and of course, Dr. Bill was six months less sober, and the other people were barely sober at all. And yet they all got together and did the book. I mean, that's got to be the hand of God. I mean, and the people they collected around them, like some of these people on this uh, exhibit, uh, Eugene Xman, you know, the, uh, the, the uh, religious editor of Harper, Harper Row Publishing, Harper Brothers Publishing, that was a big name. You know, Harper Brother was one of the leading... People read books in those days. They really read books. You know, no TV to distract you. I mean, when you had an obsession, you read a book. And uh, a lot of obsessed people running around this country reading books. I mean, uh, enormous uh, uh, power in publishing. And Harper Row was, was one of the biggest publishers, and certainly the one, of, if not the biggest, in religious books, spiritual books. And to get their religious editor involved in working with Bill and giving Bill advice and counsel was an incredible feat. Uh, and it was all, f uh, it was all serendipity. You know, uh, Bill's brother-in-law happened to know a connection. Now, Bill had worked his brother-in-law for all these trips to town's hospital. They were financed by Bill's brother-in-law. You know, that man had to be a saint. Uh, he is a saint, still alive. Uh, had to be a saint. Uh, uh, Bill's trips to town's hospital, by the way, cost, I think, $125 in those days. That was no low-cost uh, treatment program then, and his brother-in-law paid for those. And uh, we count four, by the way, rather than three. Bill said three in his writings, but we're counting four, so he forgot one. Uh, I often, uh, I'm amused that they ask the alcoholic to tell their story. You know, we're probably the least reliable to tell our stories. You know, who knows how many times people go to, you know, treatment centers or whatever. You know, it's just a lot. Um, and uh, the wives should write the stories or something, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, anyway, uh, uh, they, they, uh, they came back to fundraise. They came back from Akron from that meeting in the fall of 1937 with the approval of the little 18 hot, hot shots of the Akron group with to go ahead and, uh, and write the book. But we don't think the, uh, the paid missionaries and we don't think the, uh, uh, the hospitals are such a red-hot idea. But uh, go ahead and, and raise the money you can. Well, uh, Bill and Hank Parkhurst got a list of uh, 
you know, the 400 richest people on the planet and, uh, and hustled them. Wrote, borrowed money, wrote them letters, and hustled them. Nobody gave any money. I mean, uh, recovering alcoholics just was not a moving uh, thing for them to, to write. Bill talks about some of them thought the Red Cross might work, uh, cancer might work, but the recovering alcoholic who drank too much by their own hand was not a cause that uh, people felt they should contribute a lot to. But through his brother-in-law, he was to get the attention of uh, Willard Richardson, uh, who was uh, somehow his path had crossed Bill's brother-in-law, Leonard Strong. And, uh, and uh, while Bill was uh, lamenting one time in a visit with his brother-in-law how the rich don't care about people and blah, 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 you know, one of those scenarios alcoholics can get stuck in, they don't care, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, and still enormously desperate because uh, uh, not only was Bill not working, but his house was in jeopardy. The bank had, uh, had taken over the, uh, the house that, Bill's, uh, that Lois's family had left them. The bank couldn't sell it because nobody was going to buy the house, but they, they let him stay there for a little bit of rent just to keep somebody in the house. But they were, they were starting to, to squeal. The bank was starting to squeal about his living there. So in addition is it wasn't work. His wife was working in a, in a department store, but his housing was being threatened. You know, that's hard, hard to stay sober under those conditions. So anyway, he was, he was complaining about all these rich people who didn't seem to care. And his brother got called, uh, called uh, Willard Richardson, who uh, turned out to be a member of the Rockefeller Foundation. And Rockefeller's uh, uh, principal uh, connection with charities. He was a minister himself, very kindly man. You'll see his picture on the, uh, on the board. I think it's on the other side. No, there he is, right down there. Uh, the second man on the uh, one, two, third panel, the second man down. He looks like a nice man, and he was. Because when Bill's brother-in-law called him, he said, come, that sounds exciting. Come on, right over. And Bill's brother-in-law went over, uh, got a meeting for Bill to have lunch with Richardson. Then Richardson set up a meeting with additional people. They had about three or four meetings, and uh, Bill was beginning to taste the Rockefeller money. Uh, and Rockefeller was a teetotaler himself, interesting enough, Scotch-Irish. He had to have bad blood in his own life. Uh, and the Irish, you know, either drunk or they teetotal. There doesn't seem to be any social drinking in Ireland. <laughs> Sorry, Jimmy. Uh, uh, the, uh, so anyway, uh, Rockefeller had a, a kind space in his heart for alcoholism. And uh, so he uh, did not turn Richardson off when he said... Uh, he had run into this band of funny little people who didn't drink, and they were involved in a very, very what, uh, what was being considered a first-century Christian movement. They wanted to help each other, and that uh, maybe Mr. Rockefeller would like to meet him. And uh, Rockefeller agreed to meet him. And this was uh, uh, late in 1937. Uh, he met, first Rockefeller had sent out another, uh, another one of his people, Frank Amos, who's on our board too. Uh, that's kind of the, 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 that second and third panel is kind of the uh, self-support section of that panel. Those people were involved in, uh, in the self-support uh, part of our program. Uh, they're principally people who are connected with the Rockefeller Foundation and uh, the connection with money and the people who finally got to the point where they gave for Rockefeller a little bit of money. I'm going to try to encapsulate some of this. Uh, Rockefeller gave $5,000 of his, 
his own money. Although Frank Amos, who we sent out to Akron, came back and recommended that Rockefeller give him $50,000. This is the inside one. And that they buy a hospital. And uh, Rockefeller was adamant in the fact that the people who benefited from it should support it. That he thought it should be self-supporting. That the people whose lives are changed by it should support it. And that was pretty much what the, uh, the Oxford group thinking was. And that was pretty much the thinking. Uh, Akron was pretty much in agreement with that. Because they were much more uh, in the uh, Oxford group kind of... Uh, thinking, whereas the New York groups were much more the hustler and the promoters and uh, let's go after the megabucks and get this thing going. So somewhere between the two a compromise was reached and Rockefeller gave 5,000 of his money and he gave it through the Riverside Church, he gave it through uh, uh, Harry Emerson Fosdick who was the, the uh, minister of Riverside Church in small amounts. Now $5,000 is a lot of money certainly in the depression, no one's belittling it, but it's nothing to a Rockefeller. So you can imagine their despair when they got $5,000 from John D. Rockefeller, you know. He uh, would give much more to his favorite pet charities, <laughs> they thought, uh, or spill that much on the way to someplace else. So they were very disappointed and hurt, and they didn't even get it at once. They got it over a period of time. Most of it went to pay Dr. Bob's mortgage, because they were going to foreclose on his house, or a big chunk of it, and it was paid over years. And they were back to trying to, uh, to get the book done. And uh, they couldn't. They, could, they just simply couldn't raise the money. Uh, nobody felt uh, that amount of energy to come up with, an, with the, the, the price tag to get the book published. So they, uh, they had to do it an inch at a time. They had to, uh, 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 since they couldn't use much of Rockefeller's money to, uh, to, to do the book, they, uh, they solicited the other members. Uh, they, they, uh, Hank Parkhurst went out and bought some shares of stock at a stationery store. He stamped them Works Publishing, and he went out and put them, he put par value $25, and he went to sell them to uh, alcoholics and their friends. Now, even in your first 90 days, uh, <laughs> you're not about to buy stock for $25 during a depression in uh, a book venture that they didn't have any book. Uh, even if you love them, you know, you, you kind of say, uh, even if your sponsor came to you with such a scheme, they'd say, wait. So it wasn't exactly a red-hot uh, sales item, but they sold some. And, uh, and uh, they got enough money from uh, Rockefeller on a weekly basis to open an office in Newark, New Jersey. And that became the focal point for getting uh, William Street in Newark, New Jersey began to be the focal point. It was really Hank Parkhurst's office. He had a company called uh, Honest Dealers. <laughs> I wonder. Uh, uh, and they sold oil. He was formerly an executive of Standard Oil, one of Rockefeller's uh, companies. And uh, he had been fired for drunkenness, but he was a high, uh, a high uh, 
executive with Standard Oil Company. And when they fired you, apparently in those days, they, they, they just moved your desk to the hall. So he had his desk, but no job with, Ro with Standard Oil anymore. And anyway, he went out in this little uh, wholesale. Uh, he and Bill went into this wholesale uh, uh, oil business. By the way, Bill was his sponsor. Uh, Bill found him in Towns Hospital. And uh, so he gave his sponsor a job selling oil. Well, Bill got a low interest level in oil, and so did Hank, as a matter of fact. Uh, they hired Ruth Hawk, who's also here, the first non-alcoholic employee, so to speak, of the office. And they paid Ruth in stock. You know, they gave her a share of the stock. Nobody, well, they had lots of it around and not a big <laughs> market for her. And she, she believed in a thing, and she didn't know why. By the way, she answered an ad for the job, and uh, she told a story. She just recently died this year, in uh, May of this year, but she told a story, marvelous story, some of you heard in Montreal, how she answered this, this job. It seemed pretty nice, and she liked the people. They were sharp, and they were animated, and they were very busy. But uh, they didn't seem to care much about the oil, the oil business. Uh, you know, and funny little people would come to the office, and they'd close the door, and then... You know, and not too uh, sharp-looking people would, would come around. And then they'd be in there and they'd be laughing and telling stories, and then the funny little people would leave again. And that's all they did all day. And uh, she was a, 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 a German lady, you know, a hard-working family, uh, uh, and didn't understand the whole attitude here in this honest dealer thing. So, and, then, and then they started to pay her. She was supported by her, her father, and she had a kid, and they would pay her in the stock. So, you know, you can imagine how funny this smelled to her. And uh, she, she tells the story of going in uh, one day, just going in the office and finding them all on their knees, you know, and, uh, and uh, saying prayers at this business office. So, uh, <laughs> I wonder what race to her mind. But uh, she stayed. She stayed and served and, uh, and took her stock. And, uh, and made an enormous contribution to, uh, to the office because she handled all the correspondence and did all the drafts. She said there were 40 drafts of that. Joe showed you a draft of the, uh, the pre-publication edition of the uh, big book. Well, Ruth said there were 40 of these. You can imagine. With, uh, it, they, they made 400 copies and circulated them widely, so I guess everybody had something to say. And she would get back and get them back and be responsible for changing those, you know, taking the U out and putting the we in, and uh, somebody else would want it back, I'm sure. The last one in got his way, you know, that kind of stuff. Put God in, no, take him out. And, uh, uh, but pretty soon it was done. It was just done. Uh, they had had the, uh, the drafts, and they uh, got money, and they borrowed enough. There was uh, one guy, uh, uh, Bert Taylor, who borrowed on a failing business, borrowed $1,000 to get the check to the printer. Uh, Cornwall Press, by the way, which today, the big book is published by the same company. It's been through many, many mergers, but American Book at one time owned uh, Cornwall Press. So we're still with the, uh, the same publisher in a way that uh, they've grown and we've grown. And uh, before I forget, we've become a big publisher you know, uh, their instincts to keep it out of uh, the publishing field, to keep it for the uh, works publishing, that they'd publish it themselves, even though it may have been for the wrong reasons, that they wanted the profit on this thing themselves. They didn't want uh, Harper's getting the money. Uh, 
but it's become an incredible source of revenue for the fellowship and supports a lot of the 12-step work today. Uh, over 700,000 books per year, are, uh, big books are sold per year. Isn't that extraordinary? And they couldn't get rid of the first printing of 5,000. Nobody wanted them. Of course, anybody in the program hated it because, <clears throat> you know, it was a group conscience thing. It wasn't quite right. It only had some of my thinking, you know, <laughs> and it's some of their thinking. The Akron people didn't like it because there was too much uh, of Hank Parkhurst and the New York group in it, and the New York group didn't like it because there was too much. So nobody liked it. You know, it's like a, a business meeting in AA, you know. <laughs> Everybody goes home mad, <laughs> and nobody buys the book. Uh, but somehow they kept coming and they learned the, uh, the tradition of unity, that we have to stay together, uh, even if we're not in agreement with each other, that somehow we have a need for each other. Maybe particularly if we're not in agreement with each other, we have to stay anyway. Uh, and, uh, and of course Bill was desperate for work. One of the, one of the things he had been offered was to become a counselor. Just curious, how many people here are counselors? Uh, well, Bill, uh, Bill almost became a counselor. In his desperate need for a job, Charlie Towns tried to hire him because here was a successful man, a very uh, uh, window man, a uh, very prominent man, staying sober. That would be a nice employee for somebody running a treatment center, a high-cost treatment center, is to have somebody on your staff, Charlie Towns knew that, who was staying sober. It would be kind of a, a nice attraction if you put him there in the window for the others. Uh, and... Uh, they did a group conscience on it. Some of their instincts, because of their, their experience with the Oxford groups, felt that nobody should benefit from this thing. We should just give to each other freely and nobody make any money from it. And the group conscience at that time was Bill could not work for Towns Hospital. And they asked him to, uh, to agree to that. And as part of that commitment to Bill, they said that the groups would undertake <coughs> the support of the office, the activities of the office, that the groups would begin making regular contributions to the general service office, which at that time was moving to Vesey Street from, uh, from Newark. Uh, and, uh, and so Bill never did uh, join, uh, join Charlie Towns. And, uh, and he became a full-time uh, employee of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, and was to devote his life, which he already was, but was, was to be released from having a need to work through the contributions of the groups and the sales, the beginnings of the sales of the big book. The first big break for the book came with Liberty Magazine. Fulton Arsler, who was the, uh, the editor, also on our panel there, uh, was the editor of Liberty Magazine, and uh, he was approached, and, and Liberty Magazine was a hot magazine at that time, and they commissioned uh, Markey, do an article of uh, uh, The Alcoholic and God, which was a very positive uh, review of Alcoholics Anonymous in the big book. And uh, some 800 inquiries came to the office, and 200 of those 800 bought a book. You know, and they bought it at retail price, so they had some bucks, you know. And uh, then Cleveland Plain Dealer did a series of articles. Things began to move along. And finally, the Saturday Evening Post did an article in March 1st of 1941. There were 2,000 members by 1941. Uh, uh, 2,000 members in the, uh, the, the groups. And it's still kind of small. Within a year after the Saturday Evening Post article, there were 8,000 members. 
we think Alcoholics Anonymous is growing fast today, but that was a that was whatever that is. Is that a fourfold increase from two to eight? Fourfold increase in one 12-month period of time. It would be like going from a million and a half to uh, whatever that is, five or six million uh, by a year from now. Uh, an incredible phenomenon uh, of growth, and. Uh, and we were off and going. The uh, people say that the reason Alcoholics Anonymous works is because of the, uh, the program of recovery as described in the big book. And why it works is because of our traditions. You know, that uh, through our suffering we began to learn traditions like AA unity, like non-professionalism, like the only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking, that every group was autonomous, that Akron was a different uh, <coughs> composition of people in the Akron groups than there were in the New York groups. Akron was far more successful, and uh, Cleveland was far more successful at, uh, uh, it's kind of like, uh, I'm speculating, uh, by the way, this is my own opinion, and I urge you all to read all the stuff and make your own observations and things based on your own viewpoints and bias and uh, stuff. But. Uh, uh, it's interesting that you brought up, had we adhered to a particular uh, format in the beginning, would things have been different? Because obviously, statistically, half the people did get immediately sober. But that experience came mostly from Akron and mostly from uh, Cleveland, uh, those kinds of statistics. Uh, and, uh, and they were far more hardcore uh, program people than the New York people were. You know, uh, for example, they wouldn't bother with you unless you were serious. I mean, unless you begged to get in and you were going to get on your knees and everything else, they went on to the next one. You know, that kind of help, uh, helping others chapter. You know, don't get tied up with any one person. There are a lot of them out there. If this person doesn't want it, get on to the next one. Where uh, um, New York did not have that that one-to-one -one kinds of... Uh, uh, 12-step uh, program, or in that, that it's seemingly in that kind of intensity, at least from what I read. Uh, Bill's gifts were far more on a, a structural le level, uh, designing things and, and, uh, and tailoring things and getting the book done and getting, getting connections and, and laying out the, uh, uh, the organization of uh, an unorganized program, that kind of stuff. Uh, than the uh, Akron and Cleveland groups. So it's interesting to speculate how uh, things may have, may have gone. But, and whatever, I think uh, a lot of the fun went out of the big book because it didn't make money. You know, that a lot of people were disappointed in it. You know, that it didn't become a, a big sales point. It, it began to bubble along after the Saturday Evening Post, but it was never to sell 100, 200, 400,000 copies a year the way they had willed it to happen in the beginning, until many, many years later. Now it's interestingly enough, Bill, Bill during his lifetime, and he died in 1971, uh, the most in royalties Bill was ever to collect was $29,000. That wasn't an awful lot for somebody in 1971 that had worked for something that had become uh, an incredible household word that was to transform the lives of so many people. Now Lois gets more than $700,000 a year, you know, uh, in royalties on the four books that Bill, uh, Bill wrote. Uh, so it's an incredible uh, change that, uh, and uh, I often muse about that, uh, uh, 
Bill's suffering so long with not having any money and, and not having that kind of, uh, of uh, validation to his life. And right after he died, the sales of the big book took off, and now you, you know, and Lo Lo Lois lives on a piece of toast and, uh, you know, a cup of tea. Uh, I mean, she just doesn't have a, uh, a consciousness for large quantities of money. You know, it's just uh, interesting. <laughs> Only when you want it, don't you get it? <laughs> so, uh, there are all kinds of those lessons in our histories, you know. Uh, be careful what you will. Either get it or you don't. But <laughs> you can't tell which, which way it's going to go. I uh, would like to just take, uh, take some of the things uh, that we've talked about to make sure I've covered it and I don't, uh, I don't digress uh, too far from uh, uh, staying, in, uh, staying in the format of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous com Comes of Age and read you some of the things that, uh, that are quite moving. Uh, the trustees, by the way, were largely non-alcoholic in those days. The trustees, the first, uh, the first uh, company was the Alcoholic Foundation that they set up in uh, 1938 to, uh, to serve as a conduit for all this money they were going to get, which they didn't get. Uh, but they had non-alcoholics were the, uh, uh, the principal people, the trustees that, on that. Dr. Bob was on it, and they had another alcoholic from New York on it, not Bill. Uh, but they had four non-alcoholic uh, trustees on it, people who were on the Rockefeller Foundation, names that were household names and respected people, so that people would be left with the fact that if they gave money to this thing, uh, that the money would be seen to and wouldn't be uh, uh, taken over by alcoholics and squandered, uh, whatever. And, uh, and uh, in 1940, Rockefeller, you remember Rockefeller gave $5,000 but in 1940, Rockefeller re-entered, John D. Rockefeller re-entered uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. He watched from a side. And in 1940, he agreed to give a dinner at the Union Club uh, and invite 400 of the most famous uh, and powerful and richest names in the country. And uh, 75 of them showed up at the dinner. He bought a book for each of them. He bought 400 books for each of the people he invited. I remember the book wasn't selling so much, so it was easy to give him 400. <laughs> but he he bought them at a dollar each. He wanted <laughs> he got a bargain. He got them at cost. And there was a little you can imagine there was a little surliness about that. <laughs> but anyway, he got them at cost, and uh, the 75 uh, people, some of the, the the richest people in the planet, gathered at the Union Club, and uh, and sat at all these tables, and they had an alcoholic at each of the tables so that uh, the person could meet and see and feel and taste the living recovered alcoholic at their table uh, if they wanted to. <laughs> uh, a lot of them I'm sure didn't want to. Uh, uh, a lot of them came out of puzzlement and a sense of wonder and out of respect for Mr. Rockefeller and, uh, and uh, John D. Rockefeller Jr. couldn't come. He was sick but he sent his son Nelson and uh, and uh, they followed the format. They just held an AA meeting. The people came up and, uh, and told their stories. That was a very moving experience. I mean, you could hear a pin drop. People were impressed, as we are when, when uh, uh, Joe and Charlie take us through the stories of the people. Uh, uh, they were impressed by the uh, transformation of lives. And after the, uh, the presentation was over, 
Uh, Nelson Rockefeller read a statement from his uh, father saying how money was unnecessary for this, that these people need spiritual support, and blah, 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 blah. Well, you can imagine their disappointment. For the second time with him. And, uh, uh, and so they left uh, with a lot of bad feelings probably under their breath because they, they, were, they could almost taste the money of these 75 people. But as I say, Rockefeller wrote a letter, and, uh, and with the letter he invited these people to give small amounts to uh, the struggling uh, uh, group, and uh, those people were solicited by the uh, foundation over some years, and they were to collect uh, uh, $10,000 from that group over a period of years. So they were giving seed money. They were just given enough to tantalize them, to keep them around, and, uh, and keep them adhering to this thing. Uh, also, by 1944, the foundation was becoming self-supporting. Uh, the groups were indeed picking up their share of their commitment, and uh, they were able to pay back Rockefeller his loan, and that got his attention. Uh, probably the only charity that he's ever given money to to, uh, to pay him off, because by then they were clear that he was right, that money would have spoiled us that we would have been so fighting over who gets the money and how much and whatever that we would not have time to, uh, to see to our work. You know, to help somebody anonymous, anonymously with no thought of reward. You know, to, to, to reach out to somebody you may never see again is really the most powerful way you can do it. If, uh, if you're being paid for it, they often don't hear you because <laughs> they think... Uh, Oh, you know, I, I've hired this year, you know, I've paid for this man, or somebody's paying for him, I don't have to listen to him. He has to worry about me. <laughs> but the power of somebody, uh, I remember my own experience in NAA, that people cared more about me, in Alcoholics Anonymous, than I cared about me for many years. Especially in the beginning, people would say, how many days you got, Frank? And I would tell them, and, and you could see that their faces by their faces, that, that they, they cared about that, that I was getting more and I was getting better. Uh, Joe and Charlie were telling me that they've gone down to, uh, to Australia for the second time in 18 months. And they've seen changes in the people. And uh, the people are different than they were 18 months ago. You know, they're, they look younger, they say. And uh, they are younger. You know, as we stay sober longer and longer, we get younger. And uh, life is full of more possibilities for us. And we begin, begin to see how uh, just our hair gets grayer. <laughs> I'm going to move along here and, uh, and uh, make sure I covered uh, some of the points. Uh, so anyway, we began to see that uh, slowly but surely... Uh, by the way, uh, just a word about uh, the title Alcoholics Anonymous, which amazes me. Uh, the title Alcohol Alcoholics Anonymous had appeared very early in the discussion, probably in October of 1938. We did not know who first used these words. But after we New Yorkers had left the Oxford groups in 1937, we were often described ourselves as a nameless bunch of, of alcoholics. Uh, from, this, uh, from this phrase, it was only a step to the idea of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, at the beginning, I had liked this title very much. This is Bill writing. But as, the, but, but, but as the book naming discussion went on, I began to have certain doubts and temptations. From the start, the title, quote, The Way Out, unquote, was popular. If we gave the book this name, I could add my signature. 
The Way Out by Bill W. After all, why shouldn't an author sign his book? I began to forget that this was everybody's book and that I had been mostly an umpire at the discussions that had created it. In one dark moment, I even considered calling the book The B.W. Movement. <laughs> I whispered these ideas to a few friends and promptly got slapped down. Then I saw this temptation for what it was, a, a shameless piece of egotism. So once more I began to vote for the title Alcoholics Anonymous. We considered more than 100 titles. They didn't lack for ideas, did they? In New York, Alcoholics Anonymous had slowly gained in favor. This trend had been helped by the appearance of our first liter literary light, uh, Joe W., recently uh, scraped out of the Bowery. Years before, he'd been one of the founders of a popular and sophisticated magazine. I think that's the New Yorker. He was, he was all for Alcoholics Anonymous. He had made a burning issue out of it, and the majority of New York group rallied uh, around him. But we had failed to reckon with our friends in Akron. Out there, considerable majority favored calling the book The Way Out, and the combined voting of the two groups still showed The Way Out had the bare majority. And then they, they called old Fitz down in his farm in Maryland and asked him to visit the Library of Congress in Washington and find out how many books were entitled The Way Out and how many were called Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> Two days later, we got this reply. The Library of Congress shows 12 books entitled The Way Out. No book there is called Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> Not surprising. We said to ourselves, we sure ain't going to make this the 13th way out. <laughs> So, I mean, those kinds of serendipity things happen, that people were sent at the right time, like Ruth Hawk, who had worked for uh, the stock, and that they, they did have a connection to check this out and get these things uh, seen to, that they did have somebody like Sam Shoemaker, who Bill, Bill said was uh, the chief contributor to, uh, and the connection for the, uh, uh, the Oxford Principles and the conduit for the Oxford Principles into Alcoholics Anonymous. All these people were sent. Uh, uh, I have so many things uh, uh, marked in yellow. You know, it's like your big book when you take it home. You, you wind up uh, doing everything in yellow. Uh, and especially if you come to a couple of them. Uh, you hear things you hadn't. Uh, I think I've covered most of these. Um, uh, I hope. What I'd like to do is spend a little time, maybe. Uh, we have about... Uh, 10 or 12 minutes, if somebody from uh, the audience would like to make a comment or uh, make an observation. We have some people, some things I've left out, surely, uh, that might uh, be of interest to the group that you might want to share. Uh, anybody? Somebody? One hand. Oh, Sarah. I did not plant Sarah. <laughs> I'll repeat your question. Okay. Um, I mailed some information to Norway and the group was right there about the copyright. Sure. Uh, uh, Sarah had some communication with friends overseas about where we stand with the copyright. Uh, and uh, maybe most of you know that, but there is no longer a valid copyright on our big book. Uh, nobody knew that until uh, a year ago, but the copyright went uh, the way of all flesh in, I think, 1957. 
but nobody knew about it because they felt at that time that if you, when you copyrighted the second edition, since the first 164 pages were largely unchanged, that you automatically copyrighted the, all the content of the first edition, since only the stories were changed and we copyrighted the second edition. Not so. You were supposed to have copyrighted in 1957 the first edition when uh, that copyright was over. So uh, we didn't know that until I think last year or sometime recently. So there's no valid copyright on the big book. But I don't see it as a big problem because uh, only alcoholics buy the big book. You know, you don't see a lot of them in Kmart. <laughs> and 99% uh, uh, of them are sold through our uh, uh, meetings. I mean, uh, uh, and it's, uh, it's hard to believe somebody could underprice us because uh, I paid five bucks for my hardcover edition. I, you believe it? I came without my big book? I'm embarrassed to admit. Uh, uh, but it's hard. Nobody could uh, price uh, a big book under us, it doesn't seem. And, and who would buy them? I mean, most people would support the, the works of the General Service Office and buy their... How many in this room would buy a book for $4.10 from Kmart? As opposed to $5 from Margie? Everybody, Marge. They'd all go for the 90-cent reduction. No, I... Uh, and then we, we, we produce them in such huge quantities. I mean... Uh, they could not print them uh, 700,000 a year. We print them tw uh, 250,000 at a time. We buy our own paper in carload lots for one of the biggest, next to the Bible, I think it's the biggest book in this country, biggest selling book in this country. Uh, so uh, it doesn't look like the copyright law is going to be uh, a big problem. Uh, yes. The six step, well, the Oxford groups technically never had steps. I mean, they had eight points of the Oxford groups, but Bill heard, in Bill's meetings uh, at the Oxford groups, he heard, you know, often we hear things that, uh, that others don't hear. <laughs> and, uh, I also say things, I'm told, that I don't remember saying. Or, but Bill heard, Bill heard these. Uh, since Ebby's visit to me, I'm reading from AA Comes of Age, page 160. Since, Bill's, uh, since Ebby's visit to me in the fall of 1934, we had gradually evolved what we called the word of mouth program. Most of the basic ideas had come from the Oxford groups, William James and Dr. Silkworth. Th though subject to various variations, it all, it all boiled down to a pretty consistent procedure which comprised six steps. Those were approximately as follows. One, we admitted that we were licked, that we were powerless over alcohol. Two, we made an inventory of our defects or sins. Three, we confessed or shared our shortcomings with another person in confidence. Four, we made restitution to all those we had harmed by our drinking. Five, we, we tried to help other alcoholics with no thought of reward in money or prestige. And six, we prayed to whatever God we thought there was for power to practice these uh, precepts. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, the uh, Akron people talked in a vocabulary of the four absolutes, which were direct, uh, <coughs> uh, they were the steps of the Oxford groups. And the Akron group, even today, Prince of Pamphlet, I think they still do that, the uh, 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 Akron intergroup, uh, the four absolutes. But they had uh, kind of a three-point system that, that I felt was kind of interesting. 
The first one was trust God, clean house, and help others. You know, and, uh, and really what Bill did was take those, those three thoughts, or these six, six thoughts, and, and just elongate them, and uh, as he says, fill in the holes, and make them uh, sort of foolproof for a system, a codification of a method for getting in touch with the power in your life. Uh, Sarah, did you have a question? No. <laughs> Sarah was going to raise her hand if I made a mistake on uh, any of the dates or anything. Hi. Hi, David. Hi, David. Hi, <laughs> well, I, I, and everything I say here is my opinion. Uh, the, the question was, uh, David's, David suggested that uh, with the growing awareness, I'm paraphrasing David, uh, the, uh, and correct, you raise your hand if I misquote you, <laughs> I'm known to do. Uh, the, uh, with the growing awareness of uh, alcoholism and, and that becoming very prominent and it's no big thing you know, uh, to be an alcoholic anymore, uh, David wondered if uh, anonymity would not be such a big issue in Alcoholics Anonymous uh, after some years, right? That uh, there would be no need for it. And David touched on the point. Initially, uh, the, the uh, value of uh, anonymity, of course, was uh, shame. You know, that uh, people did not want to be known as an alcoholic. As uh, I think Charlie said, it was nothing we set out at 14 years old to become. Uh, but that has changed enormously, and it's not shame usually that uh, that's the, the big thing today. But we have two anonymity traditions, uh, not just one. One is the letter of the law, uh, so to speak, uh, anonymity uh, at the level of press, radio, and TV. Uh, and the other, the twelfth tradition, is one of spirit of anonymity, helping each other without any, any thought of any benefit. Uh, my own personal feelings is are, feelings are, uh, and hope that uh, I value anonymity more now than I did when I came in. Uh, we have something very fragile here, and something, the only thing that distinguishes us is anonymous. Uh, now, it's 50% of our name, and uh, the, I, I, the, the big thing that holds us together in these people who normally do not mix is the fact we serve each other. You know, I think it's uh, uh, Thomas Lewis writes that the, the glue that holds humanity together is the need for usefulness, the need to serve, you know, and uh, anonymity, to reach out and serve somebody without any thought of benefit, without any kind of adulation, just Joe reaching out to help Frank, reaching out to help Jerry, and not, uh, I've been, my life has been transformed by people uh, often I'll never meet again. You know, somehow an anonymous person can transform my life because I don't have any way to judge them. You know, my old friends, I can get the old racket going and uh, say, well, they're speaking wrong, they're dressed wrong, they, uh, they don't have the credentials of the Harvard Business School, blah, 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 blah. But in AA, you know, a housewife from Queens can change your life because she's sharing what happened to her and I have no defense against somebody sharing about themselves that I don't know anything about and I can be open to that kind of information. Bill said AA didn't invent anything. You know, that AA is just uh, some of this, some of that, all stuck together. 
I think the thing that sticks us together is anonymity. The fact that I, uh, I will never meet most of you again, probably. Uh, and, uh, and yet our lives have touched. Somehow there's been an important exchange between us. Uh, I know that's very true with Connie and I. We, we met each other two or three times. And I feel different from, like molecules bouncing off each other. Somehow both of them leave with energy. You know? And uh, more energy than there was in any, any of the molecules before. And that's true with Alcoholics Anonymous. Our most precious asset is I don't want anything from you except for you to be sober. I don't even particularly want to know you. You know, I've got enough friends now that I can't... My phone rings enough, you know, I don't want to mix any more than I have to. Uh, but I want to celebrate your life and your sobriety. Because when you celebrate yours, I grow. You know, that kind of stuff. Uh, and the only thing, as uh, Joe and Charlie said, the only thing we have to share, I don't want to hear your, your stock market tips. I don't want to hear, you know, I tell people who come to AA to find uh, mates or uh, stock market tips or uh, a good lawyer or a doctor. Well, you're in the wrong arena. You know, if you, want, uh, if you want that kind of stuff, you know, we're not the most adorable people in the world. You know, most of us have had five or six marriages each. I'm not. I uh, haven't had enough nerve to do it ever. Uh, but, uh, you know, you're in the wrong arena if you're looking for those kinds of things here. But if you want to know how, how to stay sober another day, no matter what, and if you want to know how to put your life on a spiritual basis, that drinking will be unnecessary, and that you'll be happy probably for the first time in your life if you're like me, we're the only game in town. You know, and that's the way I feel. I mean, that's my experience. Most of the people I see at my meetings, I love New York. You know, I work at the general service office, and people don't even know what that means in New York. You know, and they have a low interest level because they want to talk about their lives, you know. And I love that about AA. You know, uh, that, the, that's nice. Thanks. Excuse me. Thank you. I'm the uh, archivist. Ed, I'm. Uh, uh, excuse me. Okay. Uh, the the question was, how do I fit in the outfit? <laughs> Someone's going to say poorly. <laughs> uh, I thought I'd say it before you did. Uh, uh, I'm the I'm the archivist at the General Service Office. Uh, I've been the archivist for three years. I'm one of your, uh, I say trusted servants. Some people say twisted servants. <laughs> uh, and I've been at the General Service Office for 10 years, uh, and I love it. Uh, I'm not quite clear how all that happened, but it's the best thing that ever happened in my life. Uh, I, uh, I'm blessed. I uh, started there as uh, administrative assistant, uh, principally involved in the preparation of the directories. We uh, published six directories of ourselves, and I got involved. That's how I started at the General Service Office, and some other things, membership surveys and stuff like that. But about uh, three and a half years ago, Nell Wing, Bill's secretary, retired. I had worked with the Trustees Archives Committee at that time for, uh, well, seven years at that time. I've been uh, secretary of the Trustees Archives Committee for 10 years. So when Nell retired, uh, my name went into the hat to succeed her. Uh, and I love it. Uh, it's a very, I, I urge you all to come and visit the General Service Office. Uh, it's. Uh, on 31st Street and Park Avenue South in New York. We have an AA meeting there 
uh, 11 o'clock on Fridays, most Fridays. The office is open from 9 to uh, about 4.30, quarter of 5, and it's your office, and uh, I think you'll love it. Uh, we have tours any time during the day. We have about 3,000 AA visitors a year visit the office. And uh, every time one comes, it's another celebration. You know, it's another life that would not have been another another statement that God has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. Well, we have uh, a number of things. We have uh, uh, Bill's uh, correspondence, and Bill was a prolific writer and a prolific talker. And Bill lived a relatively long period of time. He lived uh, from uh, till 1971. So we have an enormous amount of Bill's correspondence. Uh, and Bill, Bill not only was a a prolific writer, but he wrote on almost every subject. You know, one of his letters could could cover four or five subjects. He had a lot to say. Dr. Bob, on the other hand, uh, wrote relatively little. We have very little. His his work was one-to-one. -one. His gifts were on a one-to-one -one basis, carrying the message. Uh, and Bill was an incredible speaker. Uh, and, and Bill went recorded. We have literally feet and feet of Bill's recordings. Everything from general service conferences uh, to... Uh, you know, all his, almost all his trips that we know of in the field, uh, of his talks. We have the early group correspondence, you know, from uh, dating back from 1937. All of the kinds of correspondence, Ruth Hawk and uh, the uh, early group histories, the early uh, correspondence of the, uh, the Alcoholic Foundation, all of the early pamphlets, all of the early books. We have, for example, representative printing. There were 16 printings of the first edition of the big book, 16 printings of the second edition, and we're up to the 23rd or 24th printing of the third edition. So we have all of those things. The, the big book is translated into 14 languages, including Japanese. Most re recent, I think, is Dutch. Uh, but you've got to see it. You know, the, the general service office is not so much, it's like the big book, it's not so much something you read as you experience and live. You know, and the office is like that. I think I urge you all to come and... Uh, and uh, poke around and ask questions and see where your money, your money goes. And, uh, and bring your love and bring your anger or rage or whatever, but bring it. <laughs> uh, I don't know if that answers your question. What Oh my God, we get 1,100 pieces of mail a day. Not all of them hostile. <laughs> uh, huh? Right. Uh, approximately half those, Ed, are with group problems. We have, uh, we, we have a staff uh, member uh, here, uh, Sarah P., if you want to add to any of this, Sarah. Uh, but uh, we have uh, 11, sta 11 staff assignments from literature. <clears throat> the mail comes in 1,100 pieces in the average day. Some days it's up to 1,500 or 2,000 if it's a four-day week, like Labor Day weekend and something. The mail is divided up by subjects. If it's... Uh, Somebody wants to know about anonymity. Somebody wants to know about literature. Uh, they want a new folder, uh, you know, on uh, hard of hearing alcoholics. The letter is separated by subject. And it goes to that alcoholic who is currently working on that subject. If it's an archives letter, I get it. Uh, so the letters are divided up. If the letter doesn't deal with a specific subject, but is group problems, it's divided up to what area of the country it's from. If it's from the Northeast, it goes to somebody. If it's from the Southwest, it goes to somebody else. The big thing is to get kind of a balance of these uh, letters so everybody gets about the same amount of letter. Nobody's burned out. You know, somebody gets two letters, somebody gets a thousand. 
that's, uh, that the, the letters are, are, are separated. And they're all, they're all answered within uh, one week or ten days, each letter. They're all individually answered except for those who ask form letter kind of answer, uh, questions, like often from schools, could you send us some brochures on Alcoholics Anonymous? Well, we have standard responses for those kinds of letters. But most of the letters deal with those kinds of things. I think I've overstayed. I really enjoyed it and benefited from it. And thanks. <laughs>